In a previous episode of the Problem of Evil series, we finally made our way into the 20th century and explored the theodicy of Karl Barth. The 20th century was a century of unimaginable horrors and yet great advancement. Approximately 120 million people in total were killed during World War I and World War II. And yet life expectancy from the start of the 20th century to the end of the century increased by 60%. Between the 19th century to the end of the 20th century, we saw a radical decline in global poverty numbers too. Towards the beginning of the 19th century, roughly 80% of the world lived in poverty, but by the year 2000, that number dropped to only being 20% of the world living under the poverty line. But as we've seen in our series thus far, no single theodicy in the Christian tradition has satisfied all parties or answered all of the questions the problem of evil presents. Maybe it's time to consider far more innovative approaches. In two unique theological movements known as process theism and open theism, philosophers and theologians attempted to consider possible solutions to the problem of evil that would move beyond the normal bounds of classical theism, natural theology, and even Molinism. Were these novel theologies an improvement? Did they move too far away from the historic conceptions of God and his created order to even be considered part of the Christian tradition? Were they even that novel to begin with? Or were they simply updated packaging on much older ideas? My name is Paul Anleitner, and thanks for listening to Deep Talks Exploring Theology and Meaning Making, a podcast that's dedicated to exploring the intersection of theology with all of our efforts to find and make meaning in the world. We're in the middle of a very long series. I think we've been going on for well over a year now, exploring the questions and challenges that come with the problem of evil. If you haven't listened to the previous episodes in this series, I would, I would highly encourage you to go back to, and start from the beginning and work your way through. I think that's the best way to experience this, the best way to make fresh connections, to see how all of these things are intertwined and tangled together and networked together. So I think that's the best way to experience it. This is obviously one of the most perplexing problems for people that oftentimes causes them to abandon their faith or to give up on any sort of Christian concept of God. So I, I think it might be worth your time. It's worth my energy to put it out for all of you. So uh, feel free to go ahead and start from the beginning of this series and work your way through if you haven't done so. These episodes aren't going anywhere. I think that's the best way to do it. Deep Talks is a listener-supported podcast brought to you ad-free by those people supporting on Patreon. Thank you all for your support. As the suffering God theodicies popularized by Karl Barth grew in acceptance throughout the world, a British mathematician and philosopher named Alfred North Whitehead was working through his own metaphysical system that could make sense of a suffering God and also square with new mathematical and scientific discoveries like quantum mechanics. Whitehead believed that early on in the development of Christian thought, as Christianity expanded and interacted with Greek philosophy, 
He felt that those ancient thinkers fundamentally misunderstood the essential nature of reality, and the metaphysics of classical theism needed to be reworked. To Whitehead, reality itself is always in a state of flux. There is a perpetual becoming that is essential to reality itself. Things come to be, and then they pass away. Christian theology and most modern philosophy had wrongly focused on being instead of becoming, according to Whitehead. Whitehead and subsequent generations of process thinkers, process theologians, thought that the terms assigned to God as his essential attributes and fundamental qualities in classical theism, terms like immutability, which means unchangeability, impassibility, which refers to God's inability to be affected by or emotionally moved, God's omnipotence or his all-powerfulness and omniscience. These These terms, these attributes and qualities that were assigned to God's fundamental character and nature, Whitehead and subsequent process thinkers felt like these were just simply the philosophical deductions of Greek philosophy imposed upon the Christian God of the Bible. Whitehead instead believed that this kind of unmoved mover There's no way that this unmoved mover of classical thought could be squared with the nature of an ever-changing reality that he saw in things like quantum mechanics or with the biblical portrayal of God as an emotionally moved God, a God who is imminent and even at times appears to be limited in his knowledge of future outcomes. How can the immutable, impassable, omnipotent, and omniscient God of classical Christian thought be squared with these biblical portrayals and be squared with the reality of quantum mechanics that had just been discovered at the outset of the 20th century? Whitehead felt we needed an entirely new and different metaphysical system. Now, it wasn't just that Whitehead only rejected the metaphysics of classic Christian thought. Whitehead also rejected the popular naturalistic assumption that matter or material things, material stuff, was the basic building blocks of reality. He proposed instead that it was experience that was the foundational building blocks of all reality, not matter Whitehead firmly believed that his new metaphysics, known as process philosophy, process thought, or process theism, would be, quote, the solution that dissolves the problem of evil, end quote. To understand how Whitehead and other process theists believed that these creative metaphysics eliminates the problem of evil, we'll need to spend some time unpacking these complex metaphysical proposals And they are complex. They are very different, very unique. And uh, if you've grown up in the church, in a maybe traditional um, Catholic church, if you've grown up in a Lutheran church, an evangelical church, these metaphysics are going to seem very foreign to you from the outset. But I want to extend an invitation to all of us 
to explore this with an open mind, right? We don't want to dismiss it right away. We're not just looking for the things that are fatal flaws in the metaphysics. Because what Whitehead is really trying to do is he is trying his best to go through his own process of meaning-making, to try to discern, is there a different way to address the problem of evil? Because as we've seen this far, every prior explanation, every prior attempt to address the problem of evil has some flaw to it. So, can Whitehead find what the fatal flaw is in each and every system and then just simply help us see a new metaphysics? Well, let's explore this. Whitehead felt that, quote, everything that exists is made up of the unification of momentary droplets of experience called entities, end quote. So the fundamental building blocks of reality is experience, droplets of experience called entities. These entities are constantly in a state of becoming bringing together, or in Whitehead's vocabulary, he used the term prehending, bringing together, prehending the past and future in accordance with their initial aims. The initial aims are the best possible outcome for each entity, and Whitehead believed that those best possible outcomes, the initial aims for each entity are provided by God. The only everlasting entity, very different, we've got to make this very clear, this is an important point of distinction, Ever, the only everlasting entity is God. Now by everlasting, Whitehead is trying to make a distinction between this sort of classical conception of God as timeless, so existing outside of time, and what he would see as a God who actually experiences something akin to the passage of time. The key distinction is that God is everlasting. God is everlasting. He is, um, has no end. Uh, so this is, this is a very key distinction we have to understand. The, the process God is not the timeless existing outside of time God of the classical system that we're probably most of you are familiar with. I think maybe one of the most helpful descriptions I can offer to you comes from Charlene P.E. Burns' book, a book that we've been referring to throughout this series, Christian Understandings of Evil. And I'm going to quote her directly in her description. The only everlasting entity is God. And here she quotes Whitehead. So we could say subquote here. God is an actual entity and so is the most trivial puff of existence in far off empty space. Uh, end quote of Whitehead there. Once any other entity attains unity, it perishes in that it becomes an object to be used by other entities in their becoming. Eventually, this prehension process leads to movement into God and a kind of objective immortality, end quote. And again, that's from Charlene P.E. Burns' Christian Understandings of Evil. So to try to help, help you wrap your mind around this, God himself is an entity. So again, the basic building blocks of reality are not matter. It's not material substance. It's not atoms and quarks. It's, it is 
um, entities of experience, little droplets of experience that Whitehead calls entities. God is an entity too, along with the most trivial puff of existence in some far-off empty corner of the galaxy. God shares in being an entity as well. The difference is, is that God is an everlasting entity, and he is what all other entities are aimed towards or should be aimed towards. We should put it like that. Eventually, Whitehead believed that over a very long process, God's aims for all other entities would eventually lead this movement, this evolution, this process back towards God and unite um, all of the rest of the entities in creation in a participation with him in some sort of objective immortality. This is, I know, admittedly, it's very confusing. Maybe you need to listen back to this section several times to really wrap your mind around it. It's important to note that God in this process of becoming is not excluded from the becoming. God is not excluded from this becoming nature of reality. In fact, as the grounds of it all, God is ever-changing and becoming too. Wow, this is a big difference from the classical conceptions and metaphysics of God. So we could say in the classical school thought, God is being. In the, metaph- in the metaphysics of process thought, God is becoming. God is becoming just as much as everything else in the world is becoming too. How does this happen? Well, Whitehead believed that God had a dipolar, so die as in two, a dipolar nature, not bipolar, though that might be his critique. Others have of process theism. God has a dipolar nature. God has an unchanging primordial nature, a primordial aspect of his nature, and an ever-changing consequent nature. So two natures, dipolar nature. The first is a primordial aspect. The second part of his nature is the ever-changing consequent aspect of his nature. The primordial aspect, in a sense, is unchanging, though this can get confusing and there's good critiques. We'll explore some of these critiques at the end of the episode or later in the episode. The primordial aspect is, in a sense, unchanging and is made up of all of the possibilities that reality can become. God is, in a sense, then, the source of all entities, though he himself is an entity. This is, I know, this is confusing. But hang with me here, all right? The primordial God, the primordial aspect of God is unchangeable and can't make decisions, according to Whitehead. We could say that this aspect of God is beyond decisions, sounds in some ways akin to the, the class, some classical conceptions of God, not, certainly not all. Creation does not come to be because the primordial aspect of God decided to make it. Instead, in process thought, creation exists necessarily because God would not be a creator otherwise. So God and creation, God and the world 
are necessary. This is a huge distinction between process thought and the classical uh, frame where you have a necessary creator and a contingent creation in process thought, process theists say, no, this is both necessary, God and creation. Otherwise, God could not be ever eternally known or, um, yes, we can say eternally, though not in the sense of existing outside of time, that God ever in an everlasting sense, that's a better word to use, that God in an everlasting sense would not be everlasting, the, the everlasting creator. So process thinkers see creation as necessary along with God. Creation comes to be not ex nihilo, as the historic Christian tradition has believed. Rather, creation comes to be, in a sense, from a pre-existent creative energy. This pre-existent primordial creative energy has to be given a direction. So the primordial God, the primordial aspect or primordial nature of God gives creativity its aims. God is the ultimate aim, but he does not decide or dictate how creation unfolds. There is this, again, creative primordial energy. It has to go somewhere. It has to be given a direction. It is fundamental. Creativity is fundamental. It is necessary. There is nothing without creativity. And God's task, if you will, now there might be some process theologians that object to this sort of language, but it's hard not to see it as a task, maybe even a signed or a directive God has to act in a particular way to give creativity an outlet, an aim. The ultimate aim is God, but God, unlike many versions of classical thought, he doesn't decide or dictate how creation unfolds. This is a huge, another huge significant distinction between process thought and more traditional classical notions of God in Christianity. Whitehead and subsequent process thinkers believe that God cannot act coercively in creation. God is the aim, but God cannot decide or dictate how the creative energy of reality unfolds, other than being the initial aim. God cannot directly do anything else to make the unfolding process do what he wants it to do. God's work in the world is the work of the world's process. So God does not step in. He does not, um, he does not, you know, manipulate particular experiences to get the outcome that he wants to have in the world. Instead, he allows creation to unfold. Each entity has its own will. He gives a freedom of will to the entities of creation, and he acts as the aim, as the lure. That's certainly, that's a word that Whitehead and other process theologians use, the lure. He lures creation to himself, but he does not act coercively. God influences the working of the world through the attractiveness of his beauty as the, and, and through the attractiveness of his initial aim. So God, in a sense, is 
courting the world. He's wooing the world. <laughs> he is um, uh, trying to make the world's processes attracted to him in, the, in his initial aim for the creative energy of all reality. In process thought, the goal of all entities, those droplets of experience, is to experience ever-increasing complexity, a constant evolution of growth that does not end. There is no end point. It always continues. It continues on perpetually in ever-increasing complexity and ever-increasing evolution and growth. This is the telos of process thought. There isn't an end, there is a perpetual process. Now, the consequent aspect of God, that second part of God's dipolar nature, allows God to constantly experience the process of change inherent to reality itself. God's consequent nature is changeable, it's personal, it's responsive, and it's bound to the very processes of change within the world, within that ever-unfolding process. So in this way, God's consequent nature is the eternal now of every moment. And as such, God experiences everything in all of reality as it happens in every changing moment. This gives Whitehead the framework to make sense of a God who suffers along with his creation as it suffers. To fans of Whitehead and process thought, this division of God's primordial nature with his consequent nature is seen as a way to help make better sense of the God revealed in Scripture, a God who appears to suffer, who gives predictions that seem to be conditional on the possible choices of human moral agents, and, and makes him moved by our prayers and petitions, allowing for the the outcomes of events to change. You can hopefully see why this division between God's uh, primordial nature and his consequent nature can be appealing to so many people. Whitehead and many Christian followers of Whitehead go, hey, this is a much better way of making sense of the biblical story. How do we have a God who suffers, who gets even emotional, that we, are these simply anthropomorphisms that don't connect to any real experience in God? Can God even have experience at all? Is he, in a sense, trapped in his timelessness? And at what point does a timeless, eternal, impassable, immutable God, does that not even make sense? Can we even make sense or wrap our minds around in any meaningful way a God who doesn't experience anything? How is it that God experiences anything at all? So Whitehead is trying to find this framework. Now, obviously, the dipolar nature thing is going to be a red flag to many of you, and we'll explore some of the reasons why there are people with uh, concerns about process thinking and what that does to God and the Christian understanding of God. While Whitehead was the original godfather of process thought, there were certainly others and have been others who are influential in expounding upon his work and developing their own variations or emphases. Some of the most 
prominent, most well-known process thinkers include Charles Hartshorn, David Ray Griffin, and John Cobb, just to name a few. All of them, like Whitehead, believed that the conception of God and the various classical schools of Christian thought inevitably make God the source of evil by claiming God was unchangeable and omnipotent. In referencing this classical conception of God, Whitehead once wrote, quote, He is the supreme author of the play, and to him must therefore be ascribed its shortcomings as well as its successes, end quote. Process theists believed that we should consider God the ethical ultimate, but creativity as the ontological ultimate. The Catholic process theologian Joseph Bracken makes the metaphysical argument in his Christianity and Process, Thought, Spirituality for a Changing World, that we should consider creativity as a force, quote, even more ultimate than God, end quote. David Ray Griffin argues in an article entitled Creation Out of Nothing, Creation Out of Chaos and the Problem of Evil, that the classical conceptions of God always run into a major problem if God is truly omnipotent and created ex nihilo. Those of you who have gone through this series or have wrestled with the problem of evil in church history for any period of time you know some of these challenges, and these are important critiques that we need to hear from process theists like David Ray Griffin. There's good questions such as, could God in his sovereignty and omnipotence act right now to end all evil in every instance of suffering? Griffin asks that question. He poses that question in his creation out of nothing, creation out of chaos, and the problem of evil. If you answer yes, then Griffin believes, if you answer yes to the question, could God in his sovereignty and omnipotence act right now to end all evil in every instance of suffering? If you say, yes, he could, he could do it right now in his sovereignty and omnipotence. He, can, he could end it all right now. If you say yes, then Griffin believes that you're confessing that God simply does not want to end evil and suffering. Or to word it another way, that God is willing that evil and suffering exist. If you say no, if you say no, God in his sovereignty and omnipotence, not even God can act right now to end all evil in every instance of suffering. If you say no, he can't, then Griffin contends, well, if, if you say no, God could not simply end evil and suffering right now, then it seems that you believe that God answers to another power. Griffin goes on to argue that he sees this idea of God creating out of nothing as not even being based in the Bible. He argues that the formless void and the waters of Genesis 1 exist before God's pronouncement of the, let there be light, and therefore that is evidence that there was some kind of pre-existing material substance or stuff of some kind that God was working with as he created. To Griffin, this signals that some sort of primordial creativity existed before the universe began. Griffin sees this creativity as part of his revised trinity, a new Trinitarian conception that he calls Trinitarian monism. According to Griffin, the Godhead should be properly understood as the Father who is, quote, unqualifiedly divine, 
the world which is becoming divine but not yet fully divine and creativity. Creativity is divine because it comes from God, but the power of creativity in the process of the world can be used for good, neutral, or evil expression. Now, obviously, this is a huge variation, a significant shift away from classical conceptions of the triune God in Christian theology, so much so that it leads many people to question whether or not process theism, process thought, such as the process theism of a David Ray Griffin can even be properly considered a Christian theology at all. Now, how does process theism attempt to deal with the theodicy problems brought about by the 19th century scientific discoveries in geology and biology? Most importantly, the challenge is brought about by the discovery of the age of the earth and the long, violent process of Darwinian evolution. This is an area where process theists feel like they have some strength in their metaphysical system. They have an advantage in their metaphysical system. In this way, they can point back to their belief that God doesn't and cannot unilaterally act in the world to bring about his desired creation. This leads to a long process, a process in which all entities, in a sense, have a degree of will. Uh, a way in which they're interacting with creativity and they can use their will for positive, neutral, or negative purposes in accordance with God's initial aims. God did not create ex nihilo, but instead he has to work with a pre-existent chaos. So God's only move within that, within the confines of reality is to lovingly persuade the entities in reality to pursue his initial aims. God can persuade in his consequent nature, which is bound to the world in a constant process of becoming, but God cannot forcefully coerce outcomes. So, process theists think we should expect the gradual process of creation to be long and slow. A long, slow process like the one we see in the geological record and in Darwinian evolution. In this way, the process theist can say that a long, bloody history of evolution filled with predation, de decay, disease, and violence is not in keeping with God's ethical aims, but God, in his involvement with and his own process of becoming with the changing world, suffers with a suffering creation. So you know that asteroid that wiped out all, all the dinosaurs some 64, 65 million years ago? God couldn't do anything about that. God felt that. God felt the pain of all of those animals dying, of the dinosaurs being wiped out. He felt the, the weight of that suffering and he was unable to unilaterally act to stop that. But in that process, a more complex, a, a better state of existence came to be, one that eventually brought about humanity. Uh, humanity would not have existed without that catastrophe 64, 65 million years ago. So because God is bound, in a sense, to the processes of creation, especially in his consequent nature, what we call natural evil is simply the inherent unpredictability of creativity at work 
in nature. The creative energy, that primordial creative energy that in some way might be ultimately the ontological ultimate is at work in nature and it's unpredictable. Entities have various ways of responding to that creative unfolding and God is there in the process too. So what we might say is a natural evil, like a cataclysmic event that wiped out the dinosaurs or a hurricane or a virus like COVID-19, what we call natural evil is just part of the inherent unpredictability of creativity as it works its way out in creation. Process theists also have a unique way of explaining and understanding moral evils. What we call moral evils are when humans use the force of creativity and the freedom of their will to create something that goes against God's initial aims and will. Now, process theism contains some nuanced variation among its proponents. Not everybody is going to agree with, let's say, Griffin's uh, Trinitarian monism. Not everyone will agree with... Charles Hartshorn or uh, Joseph A. Bracken, the Catholic process theologian, there's obviously, there's a lot of variations and differences. Some see creativity as the ontological ultimate, but others see it as the intrinsic basic principle in God, similar to the way some people may say that God is love. And what they mean by that is that love is the basic intrinsic principle, the part is the essential nature of God. Either way, there are some who express valid concerns that process theism isn't really that new at all. In fact, it may just be an updated variation of an ancient rival to Orthodox Christianity. The struggle for each and every theodicy that we have explored over the past 15 episodes is this. If God is all-powerful and omniscient, and if in the metaphysics of classical thought God transcends time, then evil and suffering happen because of God's will and intention in some way, shape, or form, which calls into question His goodness. The alternative defense to emphasizing the transcendence of God, the omnipotence and omniscience of God, is typically to present some metaphysical or ontological way for God to remain the ultimate source of ethical goodness, but for there to be some sort of legitimate challenge to his will, which brings about instances of evil and suffering. Are these instances of evil and suffering in some sense beyond God's power to prevent? So throughout the history of Christianity, we've had a spectrum of theodicies that can either be placed on one extreme in something I've called a monistic theodicy, where there is one monomon, one source of all of the evil and suffering in reality, and that source is ultimately God to the other extreme that we could call ontological dualism, which posits that at a level beyond our cosmic universal reality, there are two higher forces of good and evil. 
Mediating between those two poles on the spectrum are various forms of cosmic dualism, where there is only one source of our reality, but within the cosmic layer of reality, there are forces of good and evil that engage in struggle. And you can find on my Patreon page, I put together, this was several months ago, I put together a a chart, um, a graph, I don't know if a graph is an appropriate term, a, a theodicy spectrum chart, which posits on the left-hand side, monistic theodicies, and on the right-hand side, the, the hyper-ontological dualist theodicies, and where certain thinkers that we've explored or certain schools of thought have, we've explored thus far in our podcast, even some that we haven't specifically mentioned where those people in school of thoughts are best positioned, in my humble opinion, on that spectrum, which again is on one side, the monistic theodicies, and on the other side, an ontological dualism within the middle, some variation of cosmic dualism. So where would we position, where would we position process theism on that uh, continuum? Well, uh, I think the best place to put it is in the category of ontological dualism. As we've discussed very early on in this series, there have been other ontological dualisms in the history of Christian thought. Now, I've contended that the evidence that we have available to us from the first two centuries of Christian history would say, would, would paint a picture of an orth, the Orthodox Christian perspective on theodicy being a, a kind of cosmic dualism. And the cosmic dualism which sees that at the, the, not at the ontological level, but at the cosmic level, that there was a struggle of good and evil among, um, among agents, moral agents, both angelic and human. Now, there was a competing narrative to this, and we, we talked about this again very early on in the series. There was a competing narrative, a competing theodicy in the first two centuries, and uh, especially as we head into the third century, a competing story that we now call today Gnosticism. And there were various forms of Gnosticism, and I wish we had more access to Gnostic writings. They were more than likely destroyed um, you know, as Christianity established itself as the, uh, the predominant religion of the empire in the fourth century in Rome, in the Roman Empire under Constantine. I wish we had more access to it, but what we do have access to, we can deduce certain things, again, about Gnostic thought. And what was shared by all Gnostic schools of thought that we have access to was, a, was its radical ontological dualism, which, again, to help you understand what I mean by radical ontological dualism, I mean that beyond the cosmic layer of reality, beyond the cosmos, beyond external reality, beyond the, 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 the layer of the material experience of the universe, beyond what we might say in a, maybe in a more... Um, Kantian or, you know, even Plato, we could use terminology from Plato, the phenomenal reality, the phenom phenomenological world, that there were two forces responsible for creation. You had something akin to a, what we could say is the primordial, the, the ontological ultimate God. You have the one 
in this system, which is derived from the larger Platonic school of thought. But you also have a demigod, a demigod that is responsible for the creation of the material world. So the suffering, evil, and deficiencies in the material world could be assigned to the imperfect or evil demiurge who brought the material world to be. This, is, this was such a compelling theodicy to many because it posited that there was a real ontological force whose purposes in creation were at odds with an ultimate ethical source of truth, goodness, and beauty. Process theism can be accused of being just another variation of the Gnostic metaphysics, a radical ontological dualism where you have an ultimate ethical source of truth, but, an, but a competing ontological creative force that brings about the material world with all its flaws and deficiencies. You can see this in process thought, and maybe this is why process thought, like Gnosticism, is such an appealing theodicy on one level. Because at that initial level, you have such a you have a readily accessible explanation for why things are the way they are. It gives you an, an explanatory narrative. You know, the Gnostics had, well, the material world is flawed because it's the product of the demiurge, right? It's, it's the product of a, 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 a lesser uh, deity, right? So this helps us understand why there's deficiencies in it and why suffering exists. And in, in a lot of ways, it sounds similar to the the explanation a process theist gives, gives for, well, why, was there, why has there been such a long, violent, bloody history of, uh, of evolution, which seems to, to be the, the, the means by which creation has come to be and the means by which we now have come to be as human beings. And you can say, well, there's sort of these rules that God is, is trapped within. There's this creative force that God is just as much um, on the train of process as we are, and he can't do anything about it. Now, the process theists and philosophers may go and say, hey, we are, we are not, you know, we are not a Gnostic theodicy. In fact, many process thinkers would like to, um, would like to claim instead that they are more of a panentheist vision of reality, where God is not pantheism where all is God, but panentheism where God is in the imminent world, uh, that God is inseparably uh, attached to the imminent processes of the world. And they go, see, that, that's, that's not dualistic. That's, that's very different. But the rebuttal to that would be, well, okay, let's consider some of these questions as we explore process thought. Is, creative, is creativity ultimate reality? And this personal God who goes through the process of creativity, just a demiurge? How is this different, the Gnostic thought? Does the God or the consequent nature of God, is it subject to some other ultimate force? Is creativity the ultimate reality? If, uh, and if that is the case, aren't we better off just saying that creativity is God and the consequent nature of God is... Uh, demiurge that might be uncomfortable but it don't these function in similar roles another question would be is a dipolar god 
really, again, just a god and a demiurge. Who is ultimate and fundamentally necessary? If it is creativity and God is contingent on creativity, then creativity is God by definition, if God is that which is necessary. But on this point, there's room for those who are in more traditional, classical, historically orthodox schools of Christian thought and metaphysics to step back and go and say, hey, you know what? Uh, Do we actually speak or think of God as if God is answering to some other ultimate fundamental necessity? There's this pitfall within traditional theologies. You might hear Christians, everyday Christians and theologians alike say something like, God is sovereign or God is love. And what they can mean, if they're not careful, is that God is bound to some higher metaphysical principle like power or love. And in that sense, it might be more accurate for people to say something like love is God when they're saying God is love. And there's a big difference. There's a big difference between quoting um, from John's epistle and, and saying God is love and, and, and the inference that love is the fundamental, ultimate reality. It can be hard not to see how process theism isn't just another variation of theistic personalism, where God differs from you and I as persons just as a difference in degree, not a difference in kind. What's the difference between a difference in degree and a difference in kind? Well, we might say that Albert Einstein is different from a newborn baby in its degree and his degree of intelligence, but they're not a different in kind. Albert Einstein is a human just as a baby, a newborn baby is a human being. Does process thought relegate God to being just some sort of super thing within an arena of things. Now, in response to these sorts of rebuttals and questions, there are those like the Catholic process theologian Joseph Bracken, who have argued that Whitehead's metaphysics are actually more compatible with the biblical revelation and that we are trapped within these traditional Platonic or Aristotelian metaphysics which actually place a limit on the Christian revelation. The key question for Bracken that he feels like traditional Christian, classical Christian theism has been unequipped to answer is what is God's relationship to the world like? Is it a real relationship or is, there, is the relationship an illusion? Bracken would argue that the metaphysics of classical theism too heavily focus on God's relationship to the world being transcendent, that there's an overemphasis on God's transcendence, his omniscience, his immutability, his, um, his impassibility. The emphasis on the transcendence of God seems to make it almost impossible to make any sense of the biblical revelation of God, a, a God who seems to be more imminent and intimately involved in the activities and processes of creation than the Platonic or Aristotelian framework allows him to be. How is it that an immutable God can express so much pain, anger, or anguish like we see in the Old Testament prophets? 
Why is it that God seems to call humans to cooperate in his creative purposes in the world? Why does there seem to be conditional prophecy in the Bible? How does a transcendent God, a God who transcends time and changes not, how does that not inevitably lead to the impersonal God of deism? These are good questions for classical theism, but does the metaphysics of process theism give better answers to the problem of evil? The imminence and changeability of God is seen by many who hold to a process view to offer a degree of comfort. God suffers just like me and you. But should that changeability really be seen as a comfort? God is not being, but becoming, and to Whitehead, the world made God just as much as God made the world. This begs the question, to what end? Joseph Rackin says there is no real end. There is an internal process of becoming. But becoming what? And how does this help us define what good and evil actually is? If it is possible that God himself morally evolves. Some process theists point to God's ability to evolve as a reason why there is so much violence and even God-sponsored wars and genocides in the Old Testament, but a message of enemy love and turning the other cheek in the New Testament. The, the reason is that, well, God has changed as the world has changed. One functional problem with this is that ethical right and wrong cannot then be found in God's character and nature because that character is constantly changing. After all, why does the process theist even see God achieving his will through coercion as wrong? Could it be that we learn along with God that coercion is morally acceptable? Yes, the God of process theism can only lure humanity towards right action, and so there are certainly good concerns about what value, say, Praying to end a war or famine has at all if God is powerless to do anything to stop it. But to me, even that concern, even the concern that, well, yes, God can be affected by my prayers, but what good does that do if God can't actually do anything to answer my prayers? I get that concern. But to me, I confess, I, I think it misses an even greater concern. If God is becoming and not being, then how can we say that something like the Holocaust isn't the new good that has emerged out of the process of becoming? Then again, couldn't in the very next moment the Holocaust be evil? How would we ever know in the present moment whether or not something happening in our world, whether we could name that thing as good or evil, if God is in a process of change along with the world? Wouldn't our target for right and wrong, good and evil, always be in flux, always moving just as the world and God is? Well, the rebuttal to this from a process theist might be that there is a teleological goal in 
the primordial nature of God and that it is really only the consequent nature that is in the process of becoming. Again, we're left with the question, how is this dipolar nature different than the Gnostic ontologies with the one and the demiurge? To which process theologians might respond back, well, so many classical theologians today distinguish between what they call the ontological trinity from the the economic trinity, that is, the, the father and the son are ontologically equal but somehow have distinguishable economic roles in their engagement with the world. We can go back and forth on this, and I will admit that when we get to this level of metaphysical speculation and debate, I eventually find it too exhausting and move into maybe a more Kantian mode of thinking, a more existentialist mode of thinking. I've been trying thus far to operate on this in this Problem of Evil series as an, a neutral tour guide um, until we get to my final conclusion episode where I would share with all of you my own personal opinions, but I have to confess the difficulty in withholding my personal opinions on process philosophy. In fact, I, I just, I'm not going to completely withhold those opinions. I have to say that I, I just don't find it to be a convincing or helpful remedy to the problem of evil. To me, the dipolar nature of God is too close to the Gnostic ontological dualism, even though process theists claim to be panentheists. And I, I also, uh, the, the, perhaps the biggest thing I wrestle with is this critique. How in the world am I supposed to even know right from wrong? Because right and wrong are becoming. Now, other problems with the various classical schools of thought, the classical metaphysics. Yeah, there are. There are serious questions. And I think at its best process, philosophy, process, theism brings about valuable critiques to these classical metaphysics. I, I don't think they're untouchable. Maybe some better mode of explanation will come around. I also don't think that the classical metaphysics are undeniably biblical either. It may presently be the best metaphysics that we can come up with to understand the God of the Christian scriptures, but that doesn't mean there couldn't be a better metaphysical system to come along and to address some of the valid critiques of process thinkers. These obvious theodicy challenges for the classical school of thought, they still linger. Questions like, why pray? Questions like, are we essentially fated to our choices, even the most horrific human choices, which bring about so much suffering on others? If God did create ex nihilo with no ultimate principle to bind God's hands, why, why did he make a world with such a long history of violence, struggle, and extinction-level events, and so much natural evil. With these sorts of questions in mind, and the process critique of God as unlimited power in mind, a new crop of philosophers and theologians emerged in the late 20th century who challenged both classical and process theologians alike. This new school of thought became known as open theism. 
In our next episode of the Problem of Evil series, we will explore the ins and outs of open theism, otherwise known as the open view of God or the open view of the future. So I hope you will listen to that as well when it comes out. I want to give a special thanks to the members of the Deep Talks Patreon community. Thanks to this month's Theology 201 level supporters and higher people like Jesse, BJ, Carolyn, Eli, John Michael, Justin T, Luke H, Michael Hawk, Michael H, Michael Peterson, Paul Spencer, Paul R, Ray, Sam and Nicole, Sam P, Sarah R, Sean C, Stephen M, Taylor S, Tim K. Thank you all for your generous support. Uh, One additional bonus thing we're going to be looking to add this new year is a monthly Zoom call, a group Zoom call for everyone who's in that Theology 201 level of support or higher. So stay tuned. I'll be messaging you guys on Patreon about that opportunity. It's been so fun to see people in the forum discussions participate a little bit more. And when that happens, there's an opportunity for actual community interaction for people to be connecting with others across the country and around the world that have this shared interest that are exploring the intersection of theology and all of our efforts to find and make meaning together. And I want to foster more of that in this year to not have this just be something where you're connecting with the content I'm creating, but actually to start moving towards connecting with other people in a space that's um, hopefully a little bit safer, a little bit more um, beneficial than just Twitter or Facebook or some other social media platform. So uh, feel free to participate in the, the group forum discussions on Patreon as well. Uh, that's for any level of support. But uh, if you're really interested maybe this year in connecting with some others in conversation over Zoom call, I would encourage you to jump on that Theology 201 um, group. So If I could make one final request for your consideration, it would be to consider leaving a review and rating on Apple Podcasts. That's the number one platform people are going to discover and find podcasts still. I know many of you use other platforms and other apps, podcasting apps, but Apple is still the number one place. And so if you leave a review, it's going to improve the likelihood of someone else who might be looking for something like this but didn't know it exists, figure out that it exists, and uh, maybe to take a, take a flyer on listening to an episode. So thank you for considering doing that. I appreciate that so much. Finally, if you have questions, concerns, comments, uh, objections, all of those things, you can reach out to me either on Patreon or on Twitter at Paul Amleitner. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.